Travel back in time to the 80s. Reliving the pop culture. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. The lingo. 30 inches of thigh slapping, blood pumping, nuclear brain damage. And the love. Casey, could you please play Waiting for a Girl Like You? Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Can you say stuck in the 80s? Hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears with TampaBay.com. And today, our interview with Steve Perry. You should have been gone, knowing how I made you feel. And I should have been gone, after all your words of steel. With me as always, he's been along my side for this entire journey, my friend and pop music critic, Sean Daly. So let me ask you, was this, and I'm asking seriously, Okay. was, was interviewing Steve Perry the pinnacle of your career in journalism? Yes. Hands down. Yep. Hands yeah. down. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's some great ones, too. I mean, forming a friendship with Martha Quinn. Right. Uh, having Debbie Foreman drag me out of... Uh, uh, relationship malaise. Yeah. Those are all great things. Mm-hmm. But 45 minutes on the phone with the first singer you ever saw in concert. Right. And who whose existence pretty much, you know, in some way was the seed of Stuck in the 80s. Yeah. And and not just that, but also Steve Perry is the the unicorn, the 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 great white whale. Of, of great white buffalo, great white buffalo of of music gets. I mean, Steve yeah. Perry's this tremendous talent. He has been reclusive, you know. He is a tough get, and you landed this interview with yeah. him. Tell us a little bit about um, how you got the interview, how you felt, I'll, and I'll tell the people like what when you finally <laughs> told me, and also why you were talking to him. Right. For years, I've been trying to um, to chase down Steve Perry, but the problem is. And what a lot of people maybe don't know is that we get interviews usually when an artist either comes through town to do a concert, which Perry hasn't performed in 15 years, or you get maybe an interview if someone's got a new project to to promote. In this case, uh, Steve Perry has just remastered and re-released Grace Hits Volume 1 and 2 from Journey and uh, Street Talk, his solo album. So that was my, my in. And it still was nearly impossible. I had to finally go through Fan Asylum, which handles a lot of these artists. They're not a record company. They're just kind of like a promotional yeah. company. And, and I, f- I spammed them. I literally sent an email to every email. Carpet bombing. Yeah. And um, they wrote me back and said, you know, he is doing a few select interviews. Um, and so I, I, I emailed back and just gave him the full arsenal of stuck in East. Yeah. It's a half million people around the globe who, who, you know. And you also have, you know, not just stuck in the East, you also have the St. Pete Times. Right, right, you know, right. Tampa Bay Comp. Yeah. So literally, you know, and be honest, like close to a million people would hear this yeah. and read this. So finally the other day, the phone rings, area code 415 or something like that. And I'm thinking, I don't really want to answer Talk to some. It's probably a Spearzet trying to. No, to hunt you it's down. probably someone saying, "Did you get my press release about the you know the new Simon?" And so I I um, I picked it up and it was Fan Asylum saying right. we wanted to tell you in person if you're available on Thursday, Steve Perry would like to talk to you. Unbelievable. Now I think I was out of the office. Of course, as everyone knows, you and I sit next to each other, adjoining cubicles. We'd like to tear the wall down, uh, and just so we could like hold hands and rub feet. But uh, I guess I came in. I don't know where I was, but I came in and I sit down. You're kind of quiet and you lean over and you look at me and you say, I got Steve Perry. And I'm like, you know, me, I'm like, oh my, I'm swearing, unbelievable. And you're really calm about this because I think you're in shock. Yeah. It's almost like a shark attack. Well, my instinct was to not tell anybody until I had. Sure. Had him done, until I had the interview finished because you never know. It's like when I slept with Christy Brinkley, I didn't tell anyone right. until I actually finished. Right. <laughs> so, so consequently, yes. I didn't want to tell anyone stuck in the '80s land about it because I didn't want to like promise it and then. Yeah. Be, and then and I couldn't be. believe. It. And then the night before your interview, do you sleep? No, I, I stayed awake all night. I, I watched uh, Journey 
behind the music, the VH1 director's cut special, mm-hmm. two hours long. Yeah. And the entire night, as I'm trying to sleep, all I hear is the song Patiently. One of the first songs he records. Yeah. Playing over and over and over. I mean, like, like, like someone has a boombox sitting next to my bed. The song will never end. Mm-hmm. I cannot sleep a wink. Wow. And uh, I came in here, and they promised me 20 minutes, and it lasted 45. Now, I'll give you credit. You, you, know, you, get, you don't show your nerves on your face. Like you just get really, really quiet and withdrawn like a sick cat, and you go off to a corner just to die. You know? And all the people that, that sit around you, we all knew, like, no one even wants to talk. It's like you're throwing a no-hitter. Nobody wa- wants to talk to you on the day you're interviewing Steve Perry because we don't want to jinx you somehow. You know? right. But you and I wound up going out to eat like an hour you know, two hours before, which I'm amazed that we went, we got, we got Indian fat balls from the Indian restaurant, and I couldn't believe that you were able to eat, and you were relatively calm about yeah. it. And then the hour before, then you just went, you went quiet on us. And I was, uh, <laughs> Kelly is, is uh, one of our editors, and Kelly and I are making eye contact, like, is, he, is his heart going to explode? Is he going to make it? And then you go up there, and when you were gone doing the interview up here in the recording studio, Kelly and I would be like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's whatever, whatever time, like half hour's gone by. Do you think he's, you know? And then you came down and you were, you were sweaty, but not like, you know, extremely sweaty, like normal. Like it was normal sweat, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, and it was fantastic. And I wound up read, listening at first and then reading the transcript. And there's also a great story that Steve wrote to go along with it. And I've never seen. I really have never seen such amazing block quotes, the, the, the chemistry that you and Steve Perry have. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. I'm being honest. It really is one of the great celebrity interviews. It almost reminds me of a Vanity Fair interview. But you're very much part of it as well. Because at one point, you're trying to pull Steve Perry, and you've earned his trust and his honesty and his respect, and you're trying to pull Steve Perry out of his, you know, his uh, reclusiveness. Yeah, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. I, I don't want to belabor it much more. Right. And I'm going to give you the honor. But I think that we should hear it. Steve uh, Spears talking to Steve Perry. It's unbelievable. Stuck in his nation. I have waited forever to say this. Sit back and enjoy a conversation with Steve Perry. Thirty minutes alone with Steve Perry. This is uh, a dream I've waited <laughs> about thirty years for. Wow, this is this is like uh, a date or something. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to put uh, I need to put Laura like on my permanent Christmas card list for setting this up. I've only <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, um, your your relationship with the media. You've almost kind of become like the Howard Hughes of rock and roll as far as. Uh, a lot of things, but that's a first. But let me tell you, she said that you wrote some amazing stuff about this, the dazzle. You use words like GH2 dazzles. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought that was a beautiful headline she read to me. Well, that's what it does to me. Um, from the second I put on Grace Hits Volume 2 and you hear the first couple chords of Stone in Love, I mean, I just about collapsed into my chair. Those crazy nights Well, it's funny, when I was assembling this thing, um, I was just reviewing just now, I'm looking at it right now, the set list, and I, I forgot myself uh, how they work together. Uh, it took forever to get them to sort of flow, but you're right. I just was looking at Stone of Love after the fall, chain reaction, party's over, escape, still they write good morning girl and to stay a while, then Suzanne and feeling that way anytime. Well, those two songs were classic in the beginning era of when I first joined the band, feeling that way anytime, you know? They were, they were in a period where AOR radio 
was absolutely king in this country and in the world. And those songs sort of introduced what the band once was and introduced me in the midst of those songs as a new singer in the band. So that was important to my heart and, and, and the times. And then Walks Like a Lady and Little Girl and Just the Same Way with Greg Rowley and Impatiently and Thinking of You and then the live Mother Father. Right, right. Which I, I think that's one of my favorite live tracks of all time. It, it is for me too and I'll tell you why. The, the very first time I ever saw you on stage, it was my first ever concert and it was... Uh, October twenty second, nineteen eighty one, at the Lakeland Civic Center in Florida, and it was the, so it was the Escape Tour, and I think it was about two weeks before you filmed the Houston concert from that from where that's taken. Right. So literally, when I watch the Houston DVD, it's like watching, you know, my past unfold in front of me again. It's bizarre. Right, and, and you know what's funny? We we used to play the Hollywood Sportatorium years ago. Do you remember that in, in Hollywood, Florida? No, that's that's. Was a, it, oh, that was that was an interesting. It was like a roadie. <laughs> that's where we started with Van Halen opening for us. It was a tin building that was used for rodeos out in the middle of nowhere, and you had to ride in there with a dirt road, and it was just a mess. And when you the people were stomping around, there was plywood on the ground, and they would be stomping up and down on plywood, so it would make dust. And the room was just, you'd literally leave, and there would be boogers in your nose. It was just horrible, you know. But boy, did it rock like a son of a bitch. I mean, that place, Florida, used to rock hard. It still does. It's weird. I mean, back in the day, uh, Lakeland, which is like the halfway point between Orlando and Tampa, was the only place that had a concert venue. So everybody played there, even though it's this tiny little town. But so ha most of my memories of rock and roll in the 70s and 80s is all based in this tiny little arena in this podunk town that no one plays at anymore. And you know what? You came from a little podunk town in, in Florida, and now you're like, you're the main guy at the Times. I mean, Steve, you know, what is that about? I came from a little podunk town in California called Hanford, California. And then what did my mom do when I was about... 12, 13, she was afraid the town was getting too too dangerous and too big. Well, she, it was only like 12,000 people. So we moved to the one that was 7,000 people, so a town called Lamore. So I would be a lot safer at Lemoore High School. You know? So, I mean, talk about little little farm towns, you know? And, uh, well, I think, I think, Steve, we did okay. Yeah, it's all about the work ethic, I think. I think so. You were probably raised with the same one I had, which was... You gotta bust your butt. Yeah, you you and I actually had a pseudo conversation a few years ago. We um, you were interviewed on Canadian um, Radio One about uh, "Don't Stop Believing." It was right after it broke big on Glee again, and they interviewed uh -huh. you. And they had interviewed me beforehand, and then they would stop the interview every once in a while and say, "We'd like to play a clip now from Steve Spears from Stuck in the '80s." And I'm sitting there at home listening to it going, my God, they're playing clips of me and Steve Perry's listening to it. And now he's reacting to it. And I'm like, I must be out of my mind to think that I have any idea what I'm talking about when it comes to, uh, you know, it's like, how did I get myself into this situation? <laughs> did you have a feeling that you love to uh, reset something differently? No, I think I, I think I nailed it. I think, I think I, I, they'd asked me, you know, what the longevity of the song was about. But I'm like, geez, ask Steve Perry about the lip. I mean, don't ask me. But, I mean, I, I'd, I'd said something about how it's this perfect combination of piano and vocals and guitar and how the chorus is at the end and how you know, this reaffirming theme and, and everything. And, you know, it, it was – I think we're going to get a chance to talk about it all over again because, you know, Rock of Ages, the musical, which has that as the finale, it's about to be made into a movie. So I, I get a feeling you're gonna, a lot of people – you're not done talking about Don't Stop Believing yet. I, I, I guess not. And, and I – I don't really know why, except that I'm so grateful that, that the song has just caught on and people love it. So uh, I get everything from people my age to younger to younger. I've had seven-year-old to nine-year-old kids come up to me and say how much they love that song. And uh, at a baseball game, they want me to sign their glove or, their, or a ball. It just to see that happen in my lifetime is uh, I'm just profoundly grateful for that. Just a small town girl. Living in a lonely world He took the midnight train Going anywhere 
It's really hard to even think of another song from any generation that has the ability to continually, you know, resurface and, and, and become just as popular as it has. It just... Well, you know, all the songs, when we were recording them, uh, were given the same love and treatment and, and, uh, and consideration and heartfelt performances. I mean, we, as a band worked hard on every single track, whether it was Chain Reaction, Separate Ways, or, or Center My Love, or Open Arms, or, or you know, Mother, Father, Live, or, or anything on The Greatest Hits 2, Walks Like a Lady. I mean, all of them, different as they may be to each other, we're all given the same kind of like uh, uh, emotional express performance. So the wasn't one that we thought would, you know, we couldn't have said back then, hey, well, gee whiz, in 2011, <laughs> Don't Stop Believing is going to be the one. They all felt like they were in that category because we loved them all the same. But, you know, uh, the world chooses what it chooses and time does what it does, you know. How did you get involved with the Greatest Hits 2 project? Sony called me and asked me to oversee the remastering of the Greatest Hits and the Greatest Hits 2 compilation to put that together, to vinyl. Um, so together with the band's input, too, on Greatest Hits 2, uh, through channels, they, they gave their sort of, like, wish list, and I gave my wish list, and, and Neil Sean, he was the one who wanted a little girl on Greatest Hits 2, so we added that and pulled another one. And um, because, you know, there's time constraints on vinyl that there are not uh, on CDs. So that's why we went to four discs, so we could get it all in there and get the fidelity up. But Sony basically came up to me and wanted me to oversee it as I had done, you know, the Essential and a few other packages. So what, what song got pulled for uh, Little Girl? Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> Which one did get pulled? That's really a great question. Let me look at the list again. I might be able to tell you. You know, it's so funny looking at it right now. I can't tell you because he's worked so well together. They, they do. But I guess it was a great idea. Um, uh, gosh, it's, it'll come to me when we're talking. <laughs> I, I, I can't right now. Oh, I know what it was. Eyes of a Woman. I'll tell you, yeah. when you look at the set list for Grace Hits 2, as I'm doing right now, and, and so are you, it, it feels more like, it doesn't feel like a Grace Hits thing. It feels like a mixtape that has been, you know, dreamt up by literally the greatest, you know, the biggest Journey fan on earth. I mean, it really is like, you know, I mean, these are songs that, some of these I haven't listened to since I heard them for the first time on the album. And, and, but they're just, they're time machines, every single one of them. Steve, I got to tell you, um, I put the list together. Uh, I suggested uh, it to the band, and the only change they had was they just wanted to, Dio wanted to add Little Girl. That was the only change. So I think that the biggest Journey fan in the world was me. I know that sounds self-indulgent, but it isn't meant to be. But I still am one of the biggest Journey fans in the world. I believe in these tracks. I believe in the time that existed when we were together that spawned these amazing tracks. Uh, I mean, I believe in the trust that the manager and Greg Raleigh and Neil Sean had in me when I first joined the band that led to feeling that way. And allowing me to come in. I mean, I I believe these guys trusted that I was not going to let them down. And I remember telling the manager, Herbie, when he gave me my chance in 1978, I said, Herbie, I promise you that I will not jeopardize 
the faith you have in me in this industry. I'll do everything I can to live up to the faith that you have in me in this industry. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that's all I tried to do. And I did tell him that. If you ever talk to him, you ask him that. <laughs> and I feel I never did jeopardize the respect that he had attained in that, at that point in his career by taking a chance on me. And so, I, I mean, I don't know what to say, except that I, I really am a huge fan of, of how hard we worked uh, our time together, uh, uh, how hard we toured. You really got to know we toured really hard. I mean, that the, the the grueling tour schedule cannot be attained by anybody anymore. I mean, we never stopped yeah. four or five shows in a row, and a day off wasn't a day off, Steve. It was a an, a travel day <laughs> because the only reason there wasn't a show there is because it was impossible for the trucks to get there in time. That's the truth. So you'd have a, a travel day, and you'd lose your show day. Otherwise, I'm telling you, it would have been six, seven days a week. Wow. That's amazing. That's the truth. No, I believe that, it. Because that's how, that's how you did it back then. It was like running for public office. You really had to, to travel every single day and perform every night. And there was times we just lived on the bus, and we'd get what's called day rooms. People don't realize that. we just get a day room. And the day room was so that everybody could take a shower. <laughs> Because oh, there was no shower on the bus. I'm not making this up, Steve. Okay? So that's that's the truth. And yeah. there wasn't enough towels to go around. and <laughs> So we'd have to use, you know, damn towels. <laughs> you know, whose towel is this? Who showered before me? Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> So it was, it was, uh, it was just like that. So we lived on the bus, and uh, one big sweaty pile on that bus. Uh, and then we got to where we could get hotel rooms, and then we were rooming, uh, we were sharing rooms. And then we got to, I remember when we finally got to have our own rooms, which we were making enough money to have our own rooms. Oh, that was fantastic, you know? It was just like that. She walks like a lady With a She moved like a lady What tour was it that you were finally able to afford your own rooms? Boy, that's a good question. I, I knew it wasn't the first one. It wasn't the Infinity Tour. And I think by evolution, I think we might have been... Uh, uh, we finally had got hotel rooms around evolution. Infinity was completely a bus washout with day rooms. I would say evolution was probably 50-50 day rooms and some some two and twos and, 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 and a road manager in one and Neil or me, we'd share rooms. Um, and then I would say somewhere around departure, I, I know by the time we got to escape, we had our own rooms and we were in nice hotels, which was just, wow. That was touring. Do you look back at, uh, as, at escape as sort of being the golden era of of that time with with the music you were making and your relationship with the other band members and, and the fans' acceptance? This is how it went. When, when we first got together and, and Bruce Lumball was running Columbia Records in New York at the time, he made it very clear that if we could go platinum on Infinity, that we would make another record. And that uh, and if we made that another record, then he would do his job to help promote and let the world know that the record exists. In other words, buy a full page and billboard, things like that, which were the which were the internet of its time. And that first year of touring was why it was a nonstop blaze. I remember leaving somewhere around the end of January, first of February, and getting home three days before Christmas. I don't. See, I did not make it home that year Jeez. until three days before Christmas. And when I got home, I remember <clears throat> going to my mom's house because uh, I didn't have an apartment. Why bother? I parked my car in her driveway. Made sense to me. I'm I'm on the road, and I get home three four days before Christmas if I remember correctly. And I was sleeping down the hall, and the phone rang. 
And I jumped out of bed, buck naked, down the hall. I went running, thinking I was late for the bus. <laughs> this is the God strike me dead honest truth. And my mother looked at me like, what the hell? Because <laughs> she was already up having her cigarettes and coffee, and I'm standing there naked in the kitchen, you know. And so I, I, oops, I turned around went back in there, and because <laughs> I was just, uh, we called it road burn. Because you, you travel so much daily that you just kind of get into a, a cycle. And it got so much into a cycle that one night in Ohio, I thought I was in Cleveland, but I was in Toledo. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> Good night, Cleveland, or hello, Cleveland. I don't know what I said. And the place booed the hell out of me. Well, that was the only mistake I ever did like that. Uh, after that, because of road burn and the intensity of the Turing, spawning the term road burn, uh, between the bass drum, there was two bass drums in Steve Smith's uh, drum riser. Hidden down between the two bass drums was a little tiny LED light shining over a piece of paper that said, Toledo. <laughs> okay? Because I would be so singed around the edges. I mean, I could still perform and sing, but I just really didn't know where I was, except I just loved being in front of an audience. Did, do you know that, um, and this just recently happened, Greg Kinn, who I guess toured with you uh, during some of those times, he confessed about a month or so ago about having his roadies deliberately um, change the name of the cities occasionally on you on that tour so that you would say the wrong name. Oh, you know, I believe, I believe that. I believe he did that. Because I'll tell you a Greg Kinn story. <laughs> he was such an egomaniac and thought he was absolutely the coming of Jesus to music. And we were doing our best to navigate this incredible attitude that he had. And we all used to laugh at him because he was opening for us. That... He would do radio interviews during the afternoon while we're doing our sound check, you know, and then they would show up to do their quick check because we were done. Mm -hmm. He said on one radio station out there somewhere, um, something like, we get the press, Journey gets the money. <laughs> and I went, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, this guy was a mess. <laughs> he was a mess. And I'm sure he did change him because yeah. he was that big of a prick. <laughs> he, I couldn't believe he wrote it on his blog, yet. and I, I put it on my on my blog, and, and he's, he's he put it on but, like, but then my crew, my crew would double check because they knew. Please don't don't hang me out to dry like that. <laughs> oh my god! You know? he apologized for it on the blog, but I thought it was just. I couldn't he didn't apologize to me. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, this is the greatest phone call ever. Um, it's funny, right? One love feeds the father. One heart burns desire. I wonder who's crying now. I have to know this. When you're remastering songs, you know, that you wrote and you sang. Do you find it hard not to critique your original performance? Are you are you beating yourself up over oh, things? Oh no, you... no, oh no! It's it's constant critiquing. It's constant critiquing everything about it, and that's what was so challenging about reassembling the greatest hits two uh, to be released on vinyl, which was one hundred eighty gram virgin vinyl, and then going over and doing the same for the greatest hits with "Don't Stop Believing" to back to vinyl. I mean, that was such a challenge that I was involved in critiquing the audio, the compression, critiquing every aspect of it on top of the most difficult part was this. When I heard these tracks come off of vinyl again, I, I, I got emotional beyond my wildest expectations. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I was working with Robert Hadley at the time on Greatest Hits 2 because we did it together. And... Um, Oh, my goodness. I just got so emotional because I forgot how good they sounded on vinyl. Because, you see, these tracks, these stereo mixes would start in a tracking room, 
going through an old console, ending up, you know, 24 to 48 channels coming through a console to a stereo bus, a stereo bus to left and right. And somehow we'd get it on a piece of quarter-inch tape at 15 nips a second, per second. And it would sound amazing, but it was all geared and EQ'd and all mastered and all mixed with vinyl in mind. Because digital didn't exist. So when you hear those things go back to what they originally kind of started out targeting, that was their goalpost, you can feel the difference. You can feel and hear the difference that these tracks came home again. They came back to the goalpost that they originally were targeting when they were first being tracked in those recording studios. The sound is, is geared for it. And emotionally... They messed me up. I forgot how good they were. I yeah. forgot how good they were, to be honest with you. The stereo separation, the echoes, the uh, uh, the snare drum sounds, Neil's guitar is stupidly amazing. Stupidly amazing. And, and completely still to this day underrated, in my opinion. Stupidly underrated, <laughs> this guy. And, 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 you know, I hear I'm sitting there, and Neil and I have had our problems over the years. We probably don't like each other very much, you know, because we had a lot of we did a lot of times together. But I'm telling you what, I know we love each other because when I listen to those tracks, I get all messed up about it. We don't have to work together. I, we, I just, I just want that to be known because, you know, it's in the tracks, as they used to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the grooves, as they used to say. And it, that term, in the grooves came from the day where they would cut records directly to disc because there was no tape. So if it felt good, that meant it was in the grooves. We caught it in the groove. Well, that's what that old school stuff's all about. And and I'll tell you, there was something magical about that band and, uh, and the whole era of targeting vinyl as the final destination. Um, I understand also remastered Street Talk. Yes. Um, is it different to do that project versus a Journey project? Uh, well, that's a good question. It, it's only different insofar as it was a different set of sonics with a different set of musicians, um, different grooves. It was more of a R&B pocket record because I always wanted to get into that aspect of it. And I, and I hired a drummer, Larry London, and Bobby Glob on bass, and Randy Goodwin was a keyboards, and, and Craig Cramp on some drumming. And I mean, I hired musicians that were uh, extremely geared to that musical direction, as opposed to Journey, which had its own direction. Sure. It didn't have to. You know what I mean? It just was what it was when we were together. That's who we were, which was the beauty of that. Uh, but Street Talk had its own challenges, um, you know, but sonically and all that, uh, Nico Bolas was my engineer on that project, and uh, he he and I mixed it four hands on that little API console. No automation, four hands, ten fingers each. You know, <laughs> so it was just grabbing and moving faders as the track's going down to a two track. You know, I mean, obviously, Oh Sherry is the is the is the huge hit off that album, and the video is almost as memorable as the song because it featured your then girlfriend Sherry Swafford. Is it? Is it weird or uncomfortable? What kind of feelings go through your head to have a, a huge hit like that so prominently linked to a public relationship that you know, ultimately didn't work out? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a tough question, man. That's why, that's why they pay me the big bucks. That's a tough question. Um, Sherry and I were crazy in love, I can tell you that. And... Uh, and it was a very tough times because the band was peaking. And uh, if if any woman out there thinks that uh, it would be really exciting to be the girlfriend of 
somebody in a band like that and that it would be just all peaches and cream. I mean, the truth is it was a hard thing to navigate a relationship while you're in the midst of such a ride. Uh, it was emotionally hard on her, emotionally hard on our relationship. Um, um, you know, I'm prancing around every night, dancing around, ripping my shirt off, you know, <laughs> shaking my ass on stage, enjoying every goddamn minute of it. Uh, chicks wanting, chicks out there wanting to do things to me with a fork. Uh, that was exciting. Uh, I didn't partake in it, but it was there. Um, <laughs> it's challenging. It's challenging to the security of someone's heart. I mean, it's easy to see that. And I think it was difficult on a relationship, and eventually, uh, I think um, it just, Unfortunately, got damaged a bit. But you know, relationship. But relationships get damaged. I mean, don't. Isn't that what they do sometimes? I mean, it's just sad, but it can happen. important is music in your life nowadays? I mean, how important do you need to make music to be happy? Uh, in 1970, actually, I'm sorry, in 1998, when the band um, broke up, I think, for the second time, I went back and we did Trial by Fire together, and then we, we collapsed again. Um, um, I believe it was, uh, I think it was May 8th of 1998 um, that it was kind of officially over. Um, I didn't do anything for a longest period of time till about two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago. I I loaded up a computer with Pro Tools and 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 thanks to some of the people that I had been listening to while I just stayed out of the way, let the journey guys do their thing, and I'm just going to just fall back into life and and let it all go, you know. And I had my hip replacement shortly after they moved on and. Um, I started writing music thanks to some people that I was listening to at that time, people like the Eels. Uh, I love E. I think his writing is is, uh, is bold and and uh, uh, edgy and, and not afraid to do anything. And uh, he gave me courage to try to do the same, just to, to, to write whatever comes to mind um, in any musical direction even if it's out of the fingerprint that people have known me for, I had to give myself the right to suck, <laughs> you know, and write some music that maybe isn't so great, you know. Uh, I don't think it's so great. I play it for friends. They, they love it. But then there's other ones that I know are better. So that's part of the process, you know. Does the success that you had in the past, does that sort of intimidate you when you think about going forward in music? Of course it's in the background having to live up to certain amount of success that I never thought would happen. I had no idea in the year 2011 that we'd be seeing what's happening with Don't Stop Believing or, or releasing a Greatest Hits 2. I had no idea. You know, I didn't know that I'd be going to baseball games in San Francisco to have these 7- and 9- and 10-year-olds walking up with their parents asking me to sign their glove or their ball because they love the Journey music. I, come on. Who knew? I certainly didn't. So, is it intimidating at some level to want to not disappoint people? Of course it is. It, does, it can be that way. Um, I think the hardest thing is going to be for me when I start to record some of this music, which hopefully I'll get to sometime soon, um, is that, uh, that I keep me out of the way because I'm really the biggest problem I have with what you just said. I don't want to suck. But at the same time, I have to give myself 
the right to suck. Yeah. You know, I have to. I have to give myself the right to just do what I want to do right now, whether people compare it to whatever or not. I, I, I can't be what I once was. And speaking of baseball, you know, it's shown me an archetype of that. You see these players like a, like a J.T. Snow. I thought J.T. Snow retired too quick, but I guess in baseball that was right on time. Yeah. I, th- I thought that uh, I thought Kurt Reeder was still the Sam Cook of pitchers. This guy, he could paint the corners. He wasn't very fast. He didn't have speed or heat, but he had corners, man. He he was soulful. He could, and if and if an ump wasn't getting him corners, he was going to die that day. But I thought he retired too quick too. But you know what? Looking back, he did it at the right time. So there seems to be a um. A shelf life, you know, for 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 baseball. Um, these guys know they can't be what they once were, so they don't try anymore. They walk away, and I think to a certain degree, I think that happens to musicians. And if you're if a guy like me is going to make some more music, I certainly got to give myself the right to not have to be what I once was, especially at this age. I get the impression sometimes. And maybe I'm being presumptuous here, that you don't understand how much your fans kind of adore you and want you to be happy. And I think that if if you knew that, but you would, I think you could take some of the pressure off of your fear of sucking. I just, uh, you know, Steve. God, I wish that was true. I, I wish I could embrace that as true. I'm slowly starting to see that. Um, that's possible, uh, but if I could tell my fans anything right now, it would be that I want them to know I am happy. Uh, I was happy being in front of them every night. They lifted me to places I could not go without them. My voice was actually their voice because I had to go get it because they wanted to hear it. I can't get that without them. I've tried to sing like that here in my living room with my Pro Tool rig. What's missing is the quotient that they want me to do things that I can't find until I'm standing in front of them to go get it for them. And so they don't even know how much of a part of my life they were. They think I'm, I was a part of theirs, but they'll never know how 50-50 it really was. They need to know that. They need to know that. Without them, I was not who I am. But at the same time, I just want them to know that for the years that I have not been around, it was, it was a difficult come down in the beginning, to be perfectly honest. It was like coming off the Earth's orbit and coming back through the atmosphere and, you know, burning some heat tiles off your face on the way in, you know? Because yeah. I had to come down, I had to just not be in that focus in front of everybody, and my feet hit the ground, and uh, and now I, I'm okay. I'm I love my life, and and I'm and I'm so pleased that everybody still loves the music, and um, and I did let it go completely. I think I had to really let it go completely, Steve, with the idea that I was never going to go back to it. And three years ago, I started writing, trying to find it. And, and that's what's been going on since then. And a couple of times I've touched it. And it's given me a lift that I forgot about. That I thought I didn't need anymore. And all of a sudden, um, it's emotionally uh, pulled me through some hard times. So now I know what fans have been telling me. I think it's been um, almost 10 years to the day that we're speaking right now that um, VH1 first aired their Behind the Music special on Journey, which I think um, was the first time a lot of fans 
really understood all the things that had been going on in the background that we just weren't. Oh, that, they just touched on about 1% of it. <laughs> That's the truth. They touched on 1% of it and then turned it into a meal. Uh, I watched it again last night. I have it on DVD, and, and it's just, you know, there's this moment where you say that you miss performing, that you think about it four or five times a day still. Do you still think about performing four or five times a day? Terribly so. I am not going to ask you if uh, about reunion stuff because you've answered that a thousand times. And But let me frame it somewhat differently. When Journey gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I say when and not if because I believe it will happen, will will you be there to rejoin your bandmates at the ceremony and, and will you play a couple of tune, tunes with the boys? I really can't even answer that. Um, I don't think I can answer that question. You know, I have to see where my life is at that point and... Um, I'm not sure if it's going to happen because I've never been that excited about any of those accolades, big Grammys or anything else. I, it, it was never, ever about any of that to me. In fact, if anything, I was really against that stuff and still kind of am because I, I think that you don't need to worry about awards if you do the music right, let the music do your talking for you, then there's nothing else to say. In fact, every night, uh, this is the God's truth, John and Neil like to wake up in the morning and go to the coffee shop at the hotel and read the reviews. I never read the reviews. Only the two I read were bad enough for me to never read them again. So I never read reviews. I decided that I don't need to, to see what one person has to say about the show because I don't want to read papers. I don't want to win awards. What I want is to know, is there an encore? If we get that encore, an honest encore, I mean an honest encore, because there were nights that we wouldn't get one and we wouldn't go back out there. But if we get an honest encore, that is my review. That is the award. I'm moved on already. I'm in the bunk sleeping in the bus into the next city. I don't give a damn about awards you know what I mean? I really don't, because it was about that to me. Steve, as long as you're happy, that's all I give a damn about. <laughs> I'm happy, Steve. <laughs> So there you go. Unbelievable. The Herman Melville of, uh, of the St. Pete Times, Steve Spears, has landed the Great White Whale. A fantastic interview with Steve Perry. Steve imploring you to let the fans know that he is happy. How did you feel? That when, that, when the interview reached that point, and the interview has this great arc to it as well, where you're just kind of feeling each other out, and he's talking, and then at the end, all this emotion. It's, it's weird because when you're listening to it, um, as, as I was when I was recording with my headphones on, a lot of times when he was answering these questions, I'd ask a question and there'd be a long pause. And you could hear him literally like swallow hard and maybe then he'd sip a drink of water while he yeah. sits there and wrestles with what he's about to say. And I, there were so many times where I felt like, oh God, I asked the wrong question. Or I've, I've, I'm going to, he's mad. You know, we've gone somewhere that we shouldn't have gone. And then, what came out of his mouth instead was this just brilliant, like, uh, you know, self-examination of, of who he is and what he wants and where he's been and he, his relationship with his fans. and, and Typical Steve fans. Perry, and I mean this in a very, very good way. I mean, Steve Perry was a very – I mean, every song he sang, he gave his, gave his all. You know, he's a full, uh, full throat, you know, uh, full throttle singer. And he, he's the same way with an interview. And you get the feeling listening to your interview with, with Steve Perry that, um, he doesn't do a ton of these. And the reason is because he, he probably wants, I mean, he really gave you his full attention. You know, I mean, this guy was just on. And so interviews are still kind of special to him. I mean, I mean, he's given thousands and thousands in his life, but lately, you know, yeah. I mean, this was just so tremendous. It really was. Can I ask you a question? Sure. 
Did you cry at all? Uh, you know, I, I little when during the interview. No, when I was putting it together, and um, he's answering about Sherry Swafford, and and we're, I'm trying to lay in the song of Sherry so that it it builds at the right moment. And at the same time, I'm listening to him really swallow his words as he tries to answer this question that maybe I shouldn't have asked. That's when I started to get a little teary. I was going, I was, you know, you don't want the last thing you want to do is upset someone that you feel so strongly for. Yeah. And, um, so I, yeah, it was, it's a weird experience. And when I listen to it now, it's still a weird experience. Surreal. It seems surreal. And you could make a transcript of this interview, but I don't think that you would get, one tenth of the emotion that that he uses when he answers a question. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I was just laughing, like, "Oh my gosh!" I mean, the stuff you had was so good. I mean, he just like you guys were really locked in. You're obviously like minds. You're very you wear your heart on your sleeve. You're a very heart sleeved guy. You're a very emotional guy. Steve Perry is as well, which is which allowed Steve Perry to deliver the art that he did. You know, it's uh, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you something, Spearsy. You don't give yourself enough credit. You you know, you kind of come off like, oh, I'm an editor here. I'm, I'm just you know, I'm a fanboy. But I mean, that was a, a cre- incredible work of journalism too. I mean, you should be proud of yourself as a journalist. Yeah, I, I I am. I mean, I thought about it after I was done. Like, boy, man, if stuck in the '80s into today, I think I'd be okay with it. Like, if I shot Sean and then shot myself, Self. I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Daly, come here for a minute. Um, well, hey, congratulations. It was a uh, uh, great work, you know. I imagine that there are, uh, you know, great, great interviews in your future as well. But, you know, you always remember this one. You got Steve yeah, Perry. Yeah. I, I implore everyone out there who's a Journey fan, and maybe those who haven't given the band much of a chance, to go out there and take a look at Grace Hits Volume 2, which is the new project that he chose the songs for, every single one of them. And um, try to find them on vinyl. Because Steve put a lot of work into excellent, I will do into that. creating these vinyl masterpieces. Are you going to get some of these vinyl copies? <laughs> I'm going to your friend Daly. I don't know. Um, I think they're money. I think it's money well spent. And go back and listen to Street Talk, his first solo album, um, which I've been listening to nonstop as I prepared for the interview and after afterwards. And li- listen to the voice again. You know and. And and take what Steve Perry has to say, and let's all move forward. I mean, he's happy. Let's be happy for him. There you go. Well, congratulations, my friend. Well, I'm spent, so get your turntables out. Enjoy some journey. Along with Steve Perry, Sean Daly, and myself, we remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is produced by the St. Petersburg Times and TampaBay.com. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for the music for the opening credits. Read our blog at TampaBay.com slash blogs slash 80s. And don't forget to subscribe to the show at iTunes. Yeah.